You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. We're going to have an amazing talk today with Chris Pilecchia, who is Special Project Staff at the International Reptile Conservation Foundation, which we'll talk a lot about today. And Chris is also a member of the IUCN Iguana Specials Group. He also is the owner and operator of the Iguana Laboratory, and he knows everything there is to know about iguanas. He studied at the University of Southern Mississippi, Jacksonville State, and also Auburn University. So welcome, Chris. I'm so happy to be talking iguanas this morning with you. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited. But yes, Chris, I had so much fun preparing for this interview today. I was lucky enough to work at the Children's Zoo at Lincoln Park Zoo, and I learned a lot about caring for iguanas. I learned, obviously, that they're not always the easiest reptile to take care of, but I also learned that they have amazing personalities, and they just lit up my world and my interest, and so now I get to hear all about them today with you, and so thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about it, too. And so for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what your background is? Yeah, so I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Southern Mississippi. And like you said, I'm a staff member at the International Reptile Conservation Foundation. Um, I am still earning my my degree, uh, if you will. Uh, it, oh, it, it takes my a PhD. long time. I feel you, yeah. Andy. <laughs> I yeah, think I so, was like but, seven years in. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on, uh, this will be year number four I'm starting, I think. Um, but uh, so... I, I came here to, to USM, and uh, the, the focus of my research, my most recent research, has been on the ecology and conservation of rock iguanas in the Dominican Republic. Um, I'm also doing work on some geckos and some endangered fish as well, but my passion really is and always has been um, with iguanas and, and large lizards in general. So, well, and, and did you always want to work with reptiles or iguanas in general, like since you were a little kid, or is it more uh, an interest that developed over time? Yeah, so I have always wanted to do this. So I'm, I'm definitely following my passion, which can be difficult at times. Um, Tell but me about I it. Have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have been catching reptiles, uh, and this is documented from my mother uh, since I was in diapers and crawling. I grew up in southwest Florida, so we are full of native and invasive reptile species, including iguanas. Um, and so I have been working with these animals either just for fun, just in my backyard, uh, in my own home as a pet owner for most of my life. Um, so kind of funny story to give you an idea of how long I've been working with iguanas. When I was in, I believe I was eight. So I think that's second grade probably. I know I got straight A's. Um, and as my reward, my dad took me to a local reptile shop and he got me my first green iguana. I think it was like $20 or something like that. It wasn't very expensive, but yeah, that was 22 years ago. So Mm -hmm. I've had iguanas as pets for the majority of my life at this point. Um, So yeah, I've been always working with reptiles and I've certainly always been working with iguanas one capacity or another. It's so interesting. I always wonder if some of these specialist 
hobbies or passions for certain animals, are they, I think they must be innate. Uh, you know, when you talk about nurture versus nature, I think my, my love for horses was definitely nature, my genetics, something inside me because our past life or what, who even knows? Because my parents were not fans of horses, not to, not that they didn't, you know, they didn't hate them, but they definitely didn't love them. Didn't talk, ever talk about them. But when I was about eight years old, this is an embarrassing story, but I'll share it. Uh, I used to suck my, like, my finger or something, maybe first yeah. or second grade. And I was ruining my teeth. And the dentist told my mom, you know, Mrs. Edkin, you have to get your daughter to stop this. Like, otherwise you're going to have braces. Braces are really expensive. So my mom came home and told me that if I knocked it off, that I could have a horseback riding lesson. And I said, okay, challenge accepted. And I never put you know a finger or thumb or whatever in my mouth again. So she had to get the horse lesson. And the joke is 10, 15 years later, braces would have been a lot more cheaper than, than the horse. <laughs> than, than the horse. <laughs> so, yeah. but it is, it's something it's, yes. And obviously that's what I got my, my PhD in and uh, I'm very passionate of course about anything with hoofs and horns, but with my chance to work with reptiles at the Lincoln Park Zoo, I just really fell in love with them. And as a beha- as a behaviorist and a physiologist too, I was very, very attracted to them for their personality and their uniqueness, their color patterns, just how they're built, uh, and especially their head bopping behavior. And yeah, that's do- and really their, unique. And their do lap. And so, if you can maybe share with us for anybody who's listening to this who's not per se, an iguana fan or as passionate as you, or I was a little late to the game with loving iguanas, but I came, once I learned about them, I I came in hard and strong. So do you have like a a favorite story or anecdote that you can share about iguanas with our audience? Hmm. Well, with iguanas, that's actually kind of a tough one um, because I've got so many stories, you know. (laughs) Well, you uh, can can do a couple. I'm sure they're entertaining. So I, I, I will, uh, just thinking from from a, a captivity perspective, I've had a few. Um, so what what kind of got me started on the rock iguana path um, when I was a kid, you know, I'd go to this this reptile store in, in South Florida and I would buy my feeder crickets or maybe mice for snakes or something like that. And they always had this big rhinoceros iguana, big male in the window. Um, he lived there. He was kind of a shop pet for years. And then the store eventually shut down. And to be honest, he's probably still alive someplace in, in Florida with some other keeper. Um, but, you know, that kind of sparked my interest in this particular species. And then fast forward, I'm in undergraduate and uh, my now wife and I had just started dating and she had a more fuel efficient car. And so we took her little Hyundai about an hour to go pick up this rhinoceros iguana that this guy no longer wanted. It was a, it was a baby. It was pretty small, um, feisty. They're all very feisty when they're young and we get this animal and I, uh, purchased the, the iguana from this guy. And within about 30 seconds of me checking on it, it shot out of the box in the backseat of her car and got up into the dashboard of this Hyundai. And we had to drive an hour back with, listening to an iguana crawling around the dashboard of this vehicle. And of course, like I'm terrified and heartbroken and I'm, you know, scared that it's going to get hurt. I'm also scared that the car is going to get destroyed. I, I don't And that exactly your girlfriend might my... break up with you. Yeah. So obviously she didn't. <laughs> She's um, a good woman. You know, That's right. Yeah. So, but we, we still had to, we, I had to call the Hyundai dealership right before close on, I think it was like a Friday or something. And I was like, Hey, uh, can you guys, you know, help me 
take apart this dashboard. And they said, why? And I said, there's an iguana stuck in it. And they said, bring it by. I, we don't really believe you, but these, these guys, the dealership, I mean, I, I was savvy with cars, but I don't know where every little push pin or plastic clip is on a, you know, pretty much a plastic dashboard. Uh, and, uh, so he and this mechanic and I, we got down and started take dismantling the car for about 20 minutes before we finally got the iguana out by basically it biting my finger and me pulling it out. And, um, yeah, so she, she ended up, it turned out that was a female iguana and she was fine. The car was fine. Um, the guys at the Hyundai dealership didn't charge me anything and, uh, cause they were just excited because it was probably the most fun they had had all day. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I thought, well. I've got to name it something, right? And so she ended up being named Dashley because it was going to be Dash, but it turned out she was a female. And so we had to kind of, you know, give it that little uh, feminine flair, if you will. And so, yeah, so she she kind of sparked my interest in this particular species um, to get to a serious level. And so she ended up kind of being my, um, she was a female I ended up breeding and I've got her offspring now. She passed on due to some health issues a year, a, a year or two ago. But um, yeah, so that was, that was one of the funnier stories in captivity. Um, as far as in the wild goes, uh, you know, I've, I've caught quite a few iguanas in a few different countries now. Um, so I'm just for pleasure and everything has been released uh, of course, uh, or under permit in, in many cases. Um, but, uh, I remember there were a few, few iguanas when I was in the Dominican Republic that we caught that, uh, the releases went rather amusing where, uh, like I'd released this big, you know, 10, 15 pound male and rather than running off into the dry forest or up onto a rock face, he would come at my legs. And so of course, you know, these things are on video of me basically dancing around a giant lizard trying to bite me. Um, I had one steal my watch one time. Um, I was letting it go and it grabbed hold of my watch. So the only way I was able to get a DNA sample, which was just drawing blood, um, is I just let it clamp down on my watch the whole time. So I've got these pictures of this iguana just chewing on my watch, you know, kind of like, I, I don't know, someone holding onto a spoon or something like that. Sure, you know? sure. But um, yeah, I've, I've had a few of those. Uh, but I've also had just some really amazing experiences. I, you know, I've been able to see things like marine iguanas in the wild, and, and that was purely a pleasure trip to Galapagos. But um, yeah, it's just some some pretty fun stuff. Yeah, wow, the Galapagos. That is definitely on my husband and I on our bucket list. So I'll have to pick your brain one of these days before we before we go. But that would be so yep. incredible. And but I was giggling to myself when you mentioned about uh, Dashley and how you let her bite you to pull her out. And, uh, they, I definitely had a, a few little nips, uh, when I worked with them at the zoo is they are not as shy to tell you yeah. uh, to use their mouths to tell you how they feel. And it's not super comfortable reptile bites in general. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, a, a baby iguana is, is really not that big of a deal, but I mean, an adult iguana, they, they, you'll, you'll be going to the ER. No problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. I was lucky enough to avoid that, but no, one of the females I worked with was big and she was rescued from a, somebody that probably didn't work with her or take very good care with her. Her name was Piccadilly, but she's gorgeous. Uh, but yeah, she, she definitely, uh, would, would let you know how she, how she felt. And then, but then I worked with others that were probably more handled or just had a slightly more docile personality that I would akin to a puppy dog or an actually an older dog because they're so mellow they love yeah. to be rubbed on their is it their periodal eye that top like the top of their head is that where yeah so they, they tend to like getting scratched on top of the head or especially like kind of 
on, under the chin. Under the chin, like yeah, but yeah. It, turtles love that yeah. too, as well. Some of our tortoises, yep. I should say, that I worked with. So, yeah, and that to me was always just really interesting when I first started working with a species, as far as yeah, just their personality and how and how likable they were, and I would even argue intelligent and oh yeah and charismatic as well as and, and just yeah a lot more activity than maybe some of the other reptiles that i worked with yeah they're they're incredibly intelligent animals um they have uh, the ability to and then i again intelligence is is relevant we are still talking about reptiles here of course but um you know they they can recognize individual humans in some cases in captivity um that's important um i, I i've seen that both in the positive perspective where they, they like particular people Mm -hmm. more than others. Um, just, and I say like, just it's evidenced by the behavior and and running towards that individual or trying, or trying to bite their uh, legs, things like that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and then there's, there's, there have been individuals that, uh, will pick out people from a crowd that they absolutely loathe. That's honestly, it's kind of similar to a lot of parrots, you Mm -hmm. know, that, that prefer one person over another. Um, they can recognize, um, their names, perhaps it's just the inflection of someone's voice or some association, but they, they certainly can um, perk up with certain sounds um, differently. And, and many zoos have click trained them. They've done um, uh, target training uh, as well. Um, so that's, they're, I mean, they're incredibly intelligent. They associate rewards um, with, with actions and behavior. Um, at the same time, in the wild, and this is a problem at a lot of you know resorts and things, you know, like Cancun, for example. They they associate people with food. Um, this is certainly an issue for actually some major conservation projects as well. Um, but in captivity, you know that that means that you've got this intelligent animal that likes people and and has the ability to um, be a uh, rewarding pet at times, despite a, being a demanding one. Um, but from a wild perspective, that's also not necessarily good because we don't want to feed wildlife. Uh, and, we all know. There's well, I mean, we some, some we want to, but that. we just we want to, but yeah, we don't. Exactly. We're just not supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to remind myself of that all the time. I'm like, oh, but 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 no, no, Angie, you know better. <laughs> and now and, and yep. teaching that to my little boys as well, right? And you may have already answered this question talking about their behavior and their intelligence, but what is something else about iguanas, maybe from a physiological point of view or a behavior point of view, that most people wouldn't know. Well, honestly, I think less from a physiological or behavioral, I think most people just don't know how many iguanas there are, uh, just species in general. There are 46 species of iguanas. Wow. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. So you've got, uh, several genera. So you've got, you know, marine iguanas, um, you've got the Fijian iguanas. So there are iguanas on the other side of the world. They're not just on this part of the globe. Um, you've got the Galapagos iguanas, the land iguanas, if you will. Uh, there are two varieties of spiny tailed or thorn tailed iguanas and they're in Central America. We've got the rock iguanas, which are in the Caribbean. Uh, the United States has desert iguanas and Chuck Wallace. So you'll find those in kind of the desert Southwest. And then we've got two species of um, iguanas that are in the genus iguana. Uh, one of them is the namesake iguana iguana. That's the green iguana that everyone thinks of. You think iguana, you think of this neon green lizard with this bright crest and a big dewlap, but there's another closely related species. And to be honest, uh, other than the green iguana and one or two other species of perhaps spiny tail iguanas, um, the rest of them are pretty much imperiled in one capacity or another. So I think really that's the the biggest thing that people just don't know about them is that there's so many other iguanas that exist besides these big, green, beautiful lizards, 
Um, and most of them happen to be uh, threatened or endangered or critically endangered in one capacity or another. Well, and that rolls really nice into the next question about the mission of the International Reptile Conservation Foundation where you work. Yeah. So, I mean, our mission is, uh, it's pretty simple in its own right. You know, we work to conserve reptiles and amphibians uh, in their natural habitat, and we want to support the the ecosystems where they, they live. Um, so we try to think out of the box. We are a, a fairly unique conservation group because we, we try to kind of break the mold with certain things. Um, and the background of the individuals I work with, they're, they're not all scientific. I'm certainly in academia, but we also have pet iguanas. Uh, we also recognize the importance of zoos. Um, we understand that volunteers and the general public make up this huge component um, of, of our work and our past projects. Um, but in general, we try to connect all these different kind of groups. You know, you think of like a, a nice Venn diagram with this little overlap um, in between, but instead of just two circles, we're going to try to throw in, you know, five or six. And in, in the center, we've got this nice cohesive group. So, I mean, our goal is to really provide um, not just do work, but do our research and our, our work firsthand, but to also provide conservation groups and other conservation organizations the tools they need to get the job done. Because, um, you know, international work is hard and it takes quite a bit of time, quite a bit of money. Collaboration and, too. Uh, demand yeah, the, the manpower isn't always there. Um, I am just a graduate student. I can only leave the country so many months of the year, so many weeks of the year. Um, I can only get so much done. So in reality, uh, a conservation group is only as successful as its, its partners. So if we can give uh, the local communities, the local conservation groups in other countries, the tools they need or the assistance they need, um, that goes a long way. And to be honest, it doesn't always have to be big. Um, some of the s most successful um, strategies are these really small projects that that make a huge difference long term, um, just developing public awareness um, and and leading uh, perhaps a change uh, in public perception of given species or the habitat, you know, um, either way. So, well, yeah. And well, and Chris, that's why I was so honored and excited when you agreed to this interview because I'm just so excited to share with our audience the work that the IRCF does because let's face it uh, iguanas or reptiles in general maybe aren't as well known in the conservation arena as some of the larger mammals like rhinos and elephants and as much as I love them and have had you know think every animal is super important to learn about and save but in the same instance, some get more spotlight than others. And I think that uh, as a reptile lover myself, it's, it's great to know that there's groups like yourself out here. And so on our show notes, we'll definitely link the IRCF's website and their Facebook group and like them on Facebook. And, uh, and of course, I'm always encouraging our listeners to go check out you guys on Facebook because the more, like you said, sometimes just it's a simple volunteer uh, that can make all the difference. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, an academic or anything like that. And and we and the more we spread this message too, the more partnerships or collaborative volunteers or even scientists around the globe, the better, right? Yeah. So uh, one thing about IRCF and and my project in particular, you know, I, I'm a PhD student, so um, it's always hard to get funding, um, and and so. I, we 
you, you apply for these grants and, and they may be the other conservation organizations or governments or in, in the case of IRCF, you know, we, we did all these fundraisers and, and Facebook probably made the, the biggest difference for funding some of the projects that I've worked on. Um, you know, we, we have this, this really good network of people that are just passionate about these animals. Some of them are pet owners. Some of them are, um, you know, they work for zoos or agencies or, you know, they might be, um, you know, uh, have a bio biological background, uh, you know, academic background as well. But uh, Facebook has been truly wonderful to spreading the message that we try to put out. Uh, social media is one of those things that it's a double-edged yes, sword. Yes. Um, you know, you, you, you put out, you know, oh, we've got this rare, rare animal and it's, and, and we're talking about how to, you know, save it and all these things. And, and you obviously need to put a little bit information out there, but that also creates some risks, you know, cause there are some nefarious groups that want to, um, you know, take the animal from the wild or, or sell it or something like that um, in, in an illegal fashion. Um, so there is that, but in general, I mean, social media has been wonderful towards the conservation message, but even long before social media was really active and, and before my time with the IRCF, uh, volunteers would go with our CEO and founder, John Binns, um, to these, these other countries and basically get, get down yes, and dirty, yeah. uh, you know, after a hurricane, um, you know, cleaning up after, I believe it was Hurricane Irma, uh, for example, um, at, on, on Grand Cayman for the Blue Iguana Recovery Program, you know, um, grab a chainsaw and let's start cutting trees. And that's the kind of work that isn't quite as glamorous. Um, it's certainly at, at times not as, um, doesn't provide the data you want, you know, as a biologist, but it's oh, necessary. Yeah. So, uh, and, and there are some of the, probably the best champions of, of conservation that have come out, um, that I know, uh, personally, you know, they, they're just, you just consider them regular people. You know, their background isn't anything um, unique in, a, in the sense of, uh, you know, they, they didn't spend four years trying Seven to get a degree, a piece right. of paper saying that they're, <laughs> they're an expert. They're smarter Yeah, than so, us. you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, realistically, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, they, they work yeah. a lot harder. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so I, I really think that volunteering yeah. is- Yeah, well, that's what we found at All Creatures Podcast so. too, is just one person- can make a small difference and then together we can make a big difference just definitely by educating and, and like you said these volunteer opportunities Absolutely. and to switch gears a little bit as a member of the IUCN iguana specialist group uh, kudos to you for doing that I know we've talked to other IUCN specialist members before and tried to explain to people on our podcast that uh, all this is volunteer to be uh, one of the to be one of the experts on their committees, and so it can take a lot of time and energy. And as an expert, you're and to provide ample resources and uh, partnerships to do that. But according to the IUCN, iguanas are some of the most endangered animals in the world. Can you share with us a couple of the species that need more support? or attention from conservationists? Yeah. So uh, in general, I mean, iguanas really are uh, one of the most endangered um, groups of organisms in the world. Um, some species uh, in the past were on the brink of extinction, well below a uh, hundred individuals remained in the wild. Uh, in many cases with many of these species, there are more individuals in captivity, similar to tigers and, and, you know, some of the more charismatic species than there are in the wild, you know, where they should be. Um, 
So again, I mentioned there are you know, currently recognized 46 species, uh, roughly, give or take one or two. Things are always changing. Um, but uh, many of the groups of organisms face kind of different threats. And I can kind of speak from experience on, on a few of them. Um, you know, we always hear of like the, the marine iguanas and, and the Galapagos land iguanas. Um, and of course, they certainly do have uh, threats that they're facing, such as invasive species like rats and goats. Um, climate change, uh, and just the fact that they're so isolated. There's only, you know, one, one small island chain where these things exist, but most of these other uh, iguana species are also, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are island endemics or they're endemics to a particular habitat, a particular country or in a particular part of the world, such as the spiny tail iguanas in Central America. Um, you've got the Utila Island, uh, spiny tail iguana as well, um, which some colleagues work with, uh, and, and all of these animals have these really restricted localities. And so anytime habitat gets destroyed or degraded, whether that's by human uh, or anthropogenic means, or it is natural from a hurricane. I mean, a single hurricane, for example, could destroy the habitat of some of these, these species and really threaten population. But of course, you, know, you also have these things like poaching. Um, and uh, people think of poaching as, you know, cutting off tusks and horns and maybe, I don't know, tiger wine or something like that in Southeast Asia. But in, in, in reality, poaching is a lot of times just done, um, by the, the local people, you know, for, for subsistence. Um, and that's, they're trying to survive as much as the iguanas. Sometimes it's done, uh, because they're a delicacy and it's, it's a cultural tradition. Um, sometimes it's just done for, you know, the opulence of it all, or it's also done occasionally for the pet trade. Um, and it certainly, that has been the case in the past. Um, and still is a threat to some of these species. But uh, from my time in Dominican Republic, one of the kind of the unique threats for the rhinoceros iguana and the Rikers rock iguana is the charcoal trade. I mean, no one ever thinks of charcoal as being a illicit trade, um, but other researchers in Dominican Republic have well documented this problem um, and are still researching it. But essentially, the entire habitat is cut down and piled up all the wood is piled up covered in dirt lit on fire and charcoals made and then it's bagged up and hauled over the border into haiti and out of the country and sometimes it's just used locally um for for cooking and whatnot but a lot of it is is shipped out and it's kind of uh laundered if you will in a uh a cartel-like fashion to to make it to market. And so it's, it's a tropical lump charcoal. And so it, it sells, uh, in the mean, in the process, not only are they losing habitat, but the, the, the carbon arrows, if you will, the, the charcoal, uh, hunters or whatnot, they're also hunting the iguanas for food. So that's a, that's a big threat. Um, you also have invasive species there, uh, goats and mongoose, uh, the, the goats are degrading habitat. The mongoose are physically eating iguanas, dogs, cats, uh, rats, all of the kind of the domestic stuff that spreads quite easily, um, from, you know, uh, Europe and, and, and in general from colonialization. Um, and then we also have some species that, uh, like the lesser Antillian iguana, which is something IRCF's worked with. Uh, this is a really unique case. Um, the iguana delicatissima, if you will, that's its Latin name. It's a beautiful name. Uh, but they are the, the only other species within the genus iguana. So they are basically a sister species to the green iguana. They look fairly similar, but rather than being bright green, they're kind of these, these dark gray or super, super dark green, uh, with 
bright pink heads as adults. Uh, they have some really unique head bobbing behaviors and all this stuff, but they're actually, their biggest oh, wow. threat currently okay. is, is actually hybridization. So they are, yeah, so biosecurity is their biggest threat. So basically ships from all over uh, the Caribbean and South America and Central America that have iguanas, green iguanas that are native, um, you know, they, they basically hop the boat by a, you know, maybe a stowaway on a shipping container or something along those lines. Um, sometimes they're maybe pets that were brought in illegally or, or legally. I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure, um, and released, but basically they can hybridize, uh, these two species. And so you've got one species that's on the brink of extinction and the other species is one of the most common and ubiquitous lizards in the world. Uh, and essentially they're, the purity of the species is getting bred out of existence. And so it's, it's a really unique situation, but they're, they're certainly um, on the radar in general for, for conservation strategies. And, and I guess the last thing I need to say is, is just the spiny tail iguana group in general is very uh, underrepresented. And I think underrated uh, in general, Um, there's people doing fantastic work on most of the species, if not all of them in all these different countries in Central America. But, uh, it's, it's very hard to do field work in countries that are, you know, dangerous and difficult to just operate in. in general. No, it's so, so uh, interesting. Yeah. Again, I've, I've kind of been rambling a little bit, but these, there's so, there's so many different pressures. Yeah. There's so many different right. pressures, so many different yeah. threats in each species. And there's four, if there are 46 <laughs> of them, there's probably 4,600 different ways that these different things can go exist, you know? And with those threats, and like you said, there's so many of them, depending on the species, what are some of the solutions that IRCF and some of your colleagues are trying to do to conserve the iguanas that are threatened? So um, one of the, I, I think personally, and I, I'm not going to speak for, for everyone here, but I think personally that the first step is, is really providing education and, and communication with local communities um, without their support of, of the local community or the entire country in some cases. Uh, in which these endangered species live, there is absolutely no hope for their survival long-term. Um, there's just, it's not possible. So teaching local communities that their endemic species are as much of a national treasure and as much a part of their heritage as any of their cultural traditions or, you know, wealth or natural resources, um, is, is critical. And so the most successful conservation projects that, that I've seen either firsthand or secondhand or thirdhand have been, basically uh, championed by the local communities. Someone has the torch that is not, um, you know, an American flying over to get a PhD, but, but someone that, that lives there um, and is really committed. So there's some fantastic people, for example, Dominican Republic, a Grupo Jaragua, for example, that I worked with. Um, there have been these, these champions as well uh, with the Blue Iguana Recovery Program, which is a project that IRCF uh, has supported and still supports in one capacity or another. Um, but it, kind of the segue into into that project, for example, one of the big strategies that's often used, and and I think most people love just as far as the the thought of it is the head starting and breeding programs where these animals are, you know, selectively bred and yeah. the babies are released, and um, but that, that money, requires money, a lot money. of yeah. uh, a lot Expertise. of work on the front end to be successful. You know, it can take a ton of money. It can take a lot of time. Yeah, lots of lots of money, uh, but not just money, but time. You know, these animals are long lived. So some of these species, like the the rock iguanas, which the blue iguana is is a member of, uh, you know, they they can take at minimum 
you know, three to four years under the best circumstances to become sexually mature and, and to start producing eggs. So you're talking, you know, it might be a, a decade before things can really get going in a recovery program successfully, before animals can be released. Plus, you're not releasing animals straight out of the egg. You're raising them up for, for you know, a couple months, a couple years at a time so that they're larger and a little bit more robust to survive. And you also have to do studies to determine if these animals will survive once you release them. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah, re-releases. It's actually... Yeah, re-release is starting to be um, almost a new area of field study in different conservation yeah. organizations and universities, uh, yeah, which is it's, awesome. I love That's why I love science. We're not like, let's just do this. Let's actually study it and see if it works or, as you mentioned, optimize the best age for to enhance the likelihood that they will survive. But it takes time yeah. and money and expertise and all of that stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's really critical. Um, it, it's a very expensive um it's a it's an it's an expensive strategy um, to, to to commit, and we would love to do them in more countries, but they're just they're just not feasible right now. Um, the time, the resources. I mean, just the footprint alone for a facility needed to breed these animals and then release them in an economically sound and ecologically sound way is, is incredible. You know, it, it takes a large a large area to house all these animals. Not to mention the manpower to feed them every day for years and years. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. Um, there are other countries that have done it. Uh, there, there have been plenty of Head Start programs that have started and then stopped either because they were fairly successful. And I'm not just speaking about iguanas, but just in general, um, or they were stopped because they just weren't affordable anymore. Um, so be honest, the best way to save a species is to, to not let it get there to begin with. Uh, you know, you don't, that's the last resort is the breeding and releasing. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those fun uh, recovery strategies, if, if you want to describe it in a, in a positive way. But it's also one of the the, uh, the last resorts. That's the Hail Mary pass. Right. So, I mean, the, the most important thing you can do is to restore and preserve habitat up front. Um, one of the phrases that, uh, and this is not mine, so uh, don't, Steal away. don't quote I always me do as it. if I came up I with it. I love it. I love it already. <laughs> but uh, I... I yeah, I believe it was, it might've been Whit Gibbons, who's a turtle biologist, um, but my, one of my coworkers, who's a turtle guy, he, he uses it all the time and that's to keep common species common. So before things get endangered, before they get rare, um, that's when you need to be really conserving. So restoring and preserving habitat on the front end is much cheaper in the long run and much more successful than, than letting it get to a point where it gets badly, uh, you know, bad. So, um, yeah, keep, I, I, I there's, love there's it. a lot of other strategies that are yeah, out there. Yeah, I love it though, Chris. Uh, keep common species common. That is the goal. Yep. Yeah, and of course we want rare species to right. become common again. You know, I mean, and, and they they not always can be. You know, some of these species they're specialists to begin with. You know, and they they were never in a in a place where they were just all over. But at the same time, uh, we we want to make sure that these these species get back to. A level that is deemed acceptable, you know, and that's kind of like the purpose of like the Endangered Species Act. The, the purpose is not to list species as endangered. The purpose is actually to get them off. You know, it's a it's a win when we can feel that a species is in good enough shape to be removed right. from a list. Um, now, sometimes they're removed for other reasons, like politics and things like that, and people say that they're good enough. And there's always arguments that it's not. Yeah, that's that's a different podcast still, for a different day, right? A, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but in, in general, um, you know, we, we yeah. want to see these things do well. So yeah, um, well, and as you mentioned, some of the the final steps of trying to save a species are doing these 
breeding and then releasing programs. But as an expert yeah. in iguanas, you own them. And I was wondering if you could, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners some of the pros of owning iguanas as a pet and then also the cons. Okay. So I currently own and I, I breed um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. And, uh, but I, I currently own and, and breed uh, rhinoceros iguanas. Um, they are captives. They've been in the pet trade of the United States for at least since the 1960s, if not earlier. So they've been in here uh, in the United States a long time. Um, they were victims of smuggling in the past. Um, and then, you know, with uh, having CITES protections uh, certainly helped curb the international trade, but they're still smuggled all over the world. Uh, now, most often currently they're being smuggled um, from captive populations. So like, uh, you know, people are buying them and then they're shipping them to mostly Southeast Asia. That's the demand right now as pets, not as meat or anything like that. But regardless, um, they've been in the United States a long time um, and they've gotten here through various means. And in fact, there are probably more in captivity um, in the United States than there are in the, in their native range. Um, there, there's lots of them. Um, but I've owned them now uh, <laughs> since I mentioned the Dashley story earlier, I've owned them now um, for almost a decade, um, in, in captivity. And so I've got four adults and then I've got some, some hatchlings and they are absolutely one of my biggest passions. Um, we, I, I mentioned I'm a student, so I, I rent a house uh, with my wife uh, and, and my son, but we have, we have to rent a house that's much, much larger than what a normal three person household would have, because we essentially have a four, 400, 500 square foot reptile room. And it's, not filled to the wall with, with reptiles. It's filled with four big reptiles and then a couple small ones. And that's how much space they require. I absolutely love them. Um, they are as much a part of my family as our dogs. Um, or, you know, I mean, they, they're, they're part of our family. Um, but they are beasts of burden. So I find them to be one of the most fascinating things to work with uh, from a personality and a behavioral perspective. Uh, they're just incredibly intelligent. They're fun to work with. They're quirky. Um, the other benefit is I, I use them for outreach. You know, I take them to local schools and and, and at the university. Um, so they they do make very, for very good animal ambassadors, which helps kind of you know um, spark interest and in, and in conservation projects. But in general, their their demands are exceedingly high. Um, iguanas are green iguanas in particular are possibly the most common pet lizard in the world historically. I'm not sure if maybe bearded dragons or something like that has surpassed them in, in recent years, but in general, they are considered a staple in the reptile trade um, in the pet trade in general, which has made them due to their ability to reproduce quickly. Uh, you know, they're farmed and they're imported to the United States or they're caught in some cases within the United States and they're bred within the United States, but that makes them very cheap. Um, and so you could import green iguanas. So, I mean, in, in bulk, people are doing it for, you know, anywhere from just, couple of bucks each. Um, and as a result, every pet store in the country gets them and they are always babies and they're always cute and small and they're gorgeous. And the problem with it is, is that they realistically are one of the most difficult and expensive pets to care for. Um, now, I know people will argue with me one way or the other, but um, yeah, in general, I, ride, I ride horses. So <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> so, but I mean, he, you see this, you see this, you know, 25, uh, maybe $50 lizard at the biggest Like I would have price. a much bigger house if I didn't have horses live outside the house. But yes, yeah, exactly. no, I, I feel you. It's, it's exactly. like I said, it would have been much cheaper for my mom to just let me get braces than that first darn horse lesson. Yeah. And I'd probably be, I'd probably have, my rent would probably be about half what it is now yeah, uh, because yeah. I wouldn't have as much, you know, place to air condition or whatnot. But, you know, these animals, they, they only cost 25 to 50 right, bucks at they most, seem cheap you know, in at, some cases. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the real problem is, is that, you know, it costs me with, you know, I've got a few adults, but honestly, once you have more than one or two, it's, it's, it doesn't cost that much more to feed the extras, you know, but I mean, you're still talking anywhere from, 10 to $60 a week just in food for just a few animals. Um, you know, they've specialized, got specialized diets too, right? right. Yeah. So uh, you've got, uh, you know, iguanas that they kind of run the gambit, but uh, you've got uh, green iguanas are herbivorous. Um, and then the, the rest of the species are, you know, like marine iguanas, for example, you know, they're, they're algae eaters, you know, they're going down and diving for this very specialized diet. But uh, most of the other iguanas are, omnivorous or herbivorous in some capacity or another. And, and you know, the, the degrees in which they eat, you know, insects or animal protein to vegetable, those ratios will, will, will change between, you know, species and, and environment. But yeah, they, they are expensive. And the problem is, is providing a balanced diet is so difficult, you know, and it's one of those things that there's no money in researching it re- realistically. Um, there's lots of kind of commercial diets, which, you know, you can put the caveat, it, it's just as good or good enough, but it, it really isn't. So providing, Fresh fruit is critical. And so these are, when I go to the grocery store, for example, I'm in the checkout lane and I've got probably 20 pounds of chopped or, or fresh, sometimes organic, you know, mustard greens and collard greens and uh, dandelion greens and maybe some arugula or cilantro. And then there's all this squash and blueberries. And, and every single time the cashier says, you eat so healthy. And then realistically, what we're eating, I'm eating chicken fingers that are from the frozen section or ramen, sure, sure. you know? So it, 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 that's the problem is, you know, like I, I, I they sure. eat better than I do. And I have to spend, I have to spend, you know, at minimum 30 minutes a day uh, or collectively, you know, I might prep food for a few days, but realistically, you know, it takes a couple hours then if you're prepping for multiple days and, and all these plates have to go out and the cages have to get cleaned and all this stuff. And it takes, takes quite a long time. Um, but the food just isn't isn't honestly the food is kind of the easy part and kind of the fun part because you're making these elaborate beautiful salads and and I love I love how they to eat too whether they, they reach out and they <laughs> grab it and then you know and they and they pick what they like they're sorters to begin with and oh absolutely they are yeah so I've got several so I, you know I've got these different animals um and I've I've cared for quite a few and raised up quite a few and and you'll see food preferences sure. between individuals like some individuals will always go after you know, a fruit first, or they will pick out a particular green, for example. Um, sometimes they actually will skip the fruit and just go straight to the greens. And it just, it depends on, on the kind of the personalities and what they desire. And to some extent, it probably depends a, a good bit on what their nutritional requirements are at the time. Like a female, for example, uh, you know, it's, it's nesting season. I've got two females that are likely gravid with just infertile eggs. Um, you know, we, I, I doubt I'll, I'll have uh, fertile eggs this year. Um, but, you know, they're, they're sucking in all this. They need a lot more protein. They need more calcium, especially calcium because they're producing these, these giant yolk, you know, uh, for these, these big eggs that they'll, they'll lay, whether they're fertile or not, they're going to lay eggs. So this, this nutritional and metabolic cost is there. Um, but 
the things that you see, you see diet and it's something that we perceive, you know, we, we enjoy eating certain things. We know how to eat healthy, but the thing is there are requirements that humans and mammals just don't have like UV. Um, lighting is probably one of the most critical things. If you're in Florida, you can raise these animals outside. That also means they can, if they escape, they will establish. We can talk about that in a little bit, but, um, you know, you need sunlight. These animals are basking lizards. They, they require UV in order to properly, um, metabolize things like calcium. And so if you're raising them outdoors, you have an advantage. If you're raising them indoors, even if it's just part of the year, these animals suddenly get a lot more expensive. So for example, um, the, the light bulbs I use are anywhere from 30 to $70 a piece, just the bulb. And so each cage probably has, I don't know, three to five bulbs in minimum. So add that's, you know, a couple hundred watts of power going at least 12 to 14 hours a day. You know, and it just, it adds up. It, they, it gets so expensive so fast. And these bulbs only last anywhere from, you know, three to nine months for proper UV, uh, UVB output. So when you, you've got to replace them all. And then of course, lizards break them. You know, I hear crashing all the time in, in the reptile room and it's, an iguana is jumping at a lamp and then it slams and the filament breaks. And then I'm mm-hmm. just thinking, great, that cost yeah. me $60, oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, uh, but space is, space is, is really the kind of the, the biggest requirement that people don't uh, catch up on. Cause I mean, people are understanding more and more that and pet stores are selling light bulbs. Um, they're not quite as good as, as what I'd recommend, but you know, uh, there are specialty bulbs out there that I use, but, um, the spacing is, is, is critical. There is not a single pet store, um, at least major chain that I can think of that sells a cage that is adequate for an adult iguana um, yes, of most and species. They, and they can get big. And I would agree with that. I know when I worked with them at the zoo, they actually, we had specialized habitats from, I don't know if they were from primates or yeah. I mean, totally different yeah. enclosures to give them enough climbing room areas to bask soaking habitats. And yeah, I mean, very, very big enclosures. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's like, for example, I think my largest enclosure is, is approximately 10 feet by 10 feet. Wow. And that's for one, one adult male, you know, and then I've got some other ones that are five by 10 or six by 10 or something like that. So they, they, they're taking up, you know, anywhere from 50 to a hundred square feet of, of, of house or outdoors in some cases. And so that's, that's huge. And there are downsides with buying anything that's kind of prefabricated. You know, if you buy just mesh, you know, they, they require humidity. And so you've got to raise the humidity in the room but humidity is not good for a house right. so you've got to find a way to seal the cage and it, again i'm just the, the goal I'm, I'm trying to or the that the point i'm trying to push home here is that these animals are incredible they can be wonderful pets but people just need to do their homework and they need to understand that they have uh, an their diet needs to be well balanced um their habitat needs to be proper or they're not going to live uh, as long as they should. And and let me put this little factoid out there. Green iguanas usually live anywhere from 20 to 25 years. That's a long time for any reptile or any pet. You know, dogs normally don't live even half that in some cases for large breeds. But rock iguanas, for example, can live up to 70 years in captivity. I know of multiple animals that exceed my age in captivity by several decades. And, you know, they're still alive today. So my son will I will have to write into my will what will happen to my pet iguanas. So, and, and perhaps that's even somewhat irresponsible of me as a pet owner, but it's just the truth. These animals are long lived. So you've got to not only plan to take care of them when they're tiny and when they're cute, 
Um, although to be honest, their behavior is spastic and skittish when they're small. They get better as they get bigger. They get more mellow was, and, yeah, and they calm that, down. That's and what I'm hoping for in my boys as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. So they, yeah, they age like yeah, a fine yeah. wine, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, they just, they, they require so much. And so they are both the best pets and that's a totally biased statement, but they're also the absolute worst pets at the same time, just due to the, the, the costs and some of the, the drawbacks that come with them. Now I will say this from a, like a human health perspective, you, you, there's, you always hear the salmonella risk issue, but that's the case with most reptiles and, and often it has to do with animals being in unsanitary conditions. But also these animals do have teeth, uh, very large serrated well, teeth. Know. And I if they do bite, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I've taken a few bites on, on my hands and stuff that my finger didn't, I, I couldn't feel one of my ring fingers for I think wow. two and a half months after a spiny tail iguana bite. And it wasn't sure. even a big one. It just, it just got infected mm -hmm. really quickly. Um, you know, so you're talking like a trip to the ER in some cases. Uh, and I've seen 30 plus stitches on someone's face, you know, from, from a green iguana. So, you know, they have these awesome personalities. They have this puppy dog like intelligence at times, but at the same time, they are, they're not right. true domesticated animals. And so they, I mean, domesticated animals still bite, but regardless, there are risks. So I, realistically do your homework do your research um you know invest understand that the cost of the animal is just a fraction of their long-term care costs and or just their initial cost to raise them and uh you know you can be a good owner at that and and so again i mentioned i breed but when i breed i actually and there's a few other keepers that do this and and more people are doing it in in, in the reptile industry now but we i send out a, a questionnaire an application to anyone that wants to take one of these animals home. And uh, you've got to be over 18 years of age. You've got to let me know, um, you know, some kind of personal information about, you know, your home, you rent, uh, because, you know, a lot of times we see people, you know, they, they bring something home and their spouse, you know, didn't want it or, you know, their kids are afraid of it or, you know, they weren't supposed sure. to have mm -hmm. it in their apartment, you know, and, and those things, you know, I, I don't want to exclude someone, you know, from this experience. I don't want to sound elitist, but at the same time, they just aren't for everyone. Um, and so it's important that we find the best homes possible. So the green iguana is a, is a unique case, not unique, I should say, but it's, it's, uh, within iguanas, it's fairly unique. It, it is the most expendable pet. It's the goldfish of the lizard world. You know, these animals get dumped. Um, and so we, I try to avoid that with other species. I don't want to see that happen to other species. I'd never wanted to see it happen with green iguanas to begin with, but that's, you know, 30, 40, 50 years yeah. in the past at this point. So making sure animals are not seen as these expendable, disposable, cheap pets and making well, sure they're well cared for. You bring up some really good points as far as the green iguanas, certain, certain species being expendable pets, because we have a real problem here with iguanas as an invasive species in Florida and I think in the Southeast in general. Oh, so can you talk to me a little bit about the other end when there's too many of a species living in a place where they shouldn't, they didn't naturally evolve. Yeah. So Florida, I, mean, I, I grew up there. So I grew up seeing these iguanas. Now Florida actually has three species of, of invasive iguanas, non-natives. Um, the green iguana is the, the largest is also the most commonly seen. It's on both the, the West coast and the East coast of South Florida. And their, their range is expanding North fairly rapidly. Um, 
There's also the common spiny tail iguana or black spiny tail iguana, Tinosaurus similis. So that's like what you'd see if you went on vacation to Cancun. Um, that's the species. They're supposed to be in Mexico. They're not supposed to be here. Um, and so there's a several populations that are very large on both coasts of Florida. And then there's also one population that's very tiny and very localized and really not that big of a threat, threat in urban Miami of Tinosaurus pectinata, which is the Mexican spiny tail iguana. So another Mexican species, and that's just in kind of one localized area. Um, but in general, the, the green iguana and the black spiny tail iguana are uh, fairly big ecological threats. So uh, they're, the green iguana species is herbivorous, um, which doesn't, which might seem harmless to kind of you know nature in general, our habitat and the ecosystem, but they they do cause quite a bit of damage. The spiny tail iguana they are omnivorous, so they actually predate quite happily on everything from native gopher tortoise hatchlings to uh, small mammals, uh, lots of migratory birds or uh, shorebirds in many cases uh, on Gasparilla Island. Uh, Boca Grande is the town on the west coast of Florida. You know, they're on this beautiful barrier island and we've got all these awesome endemic, or I shouldn't say endemic, but native species such as gopher tortoises. Um, and these species are there's also terns and all these other, you know, wonderful uh, seabirds, and they will happily gobble up nests and eggs, uh, hatchlings. They'll eat any of our oh. native wildlife. I've even seen them chase squirrels. You know, so think about how big a gray squirrel is, and, and these iguanas will sure. go after them. Um, no, and they're just trying to survive. But they were they were released there, and I think the population on that coast was like narrowed down to a single person that released a few. Um, now I don't know about the east coast. I can't speak from experience with many of these, but some of these invasive species populations, you know, you can you you can find that kind of patient zero or ground zero, if you will, um, of, of where they came from. And there's techniques that are used, but regardless, the damage that they cause is not just eating animals, but really degrading habitat. And it's also degrading human infrastructure. Uh, the green iguanas and the spiny tail iguanas both like to burrow. Um, they, they burrow either to, uh, you know, have a retreat or they burrow to make nests. Green iguanas are arboreal, so they climb trees. And so a lot of times they retreat into water, like over canals, but inevitably, uh, their propensity for water brings them to places like bridges, docks, seawalls. Um, and so what they do is they dig in behind these nice rock structures, which seem like a really good side of a house. Um, or sometimes actually under human houses, uh, and they dig these nests and eventually it just erodes away. You know, Florida gets these, these rains and storms and, um, you know, all, all of these, these weather patterns that really promote erosion. And so roads can be dug under and eventually collapse causing potholes. Um, Puerto Rico is actually a great example of this. Puerto Rico has got a, has had a green iguana problem. Um, that is beyond the scale of Florida. And I mean, in, in fact, they've actually caused delays and flight diversions from the San Juan International Airport because there were so many on the runway. Wow. So actually in that case, yeah. Human, yeah so, I mean, you, you could argue human lives were at risk in that sure. case. Um, a lot of times they just cause power outages. You know, they're, they're climbing up a phone pole and they get electrocuted. And, you know, that, that's not fun for the iguana. I, I know it didn't want to do that. But at the same time, you know, it causes, causes a power outage. And so I, I want to, there's, I mean, there's millions of dollars in infrastructure damage every year in Puerto Rico alone. I don't know if the figures have been tallied in Florida, but I, I'd imagine it is, it is quite high and it's only going to get higher. You know, the Florida Keys is a really unique island chain. Uh, it's really unique habitat and they are just all over the Keys. Oh, the I've green seen ones. them there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every, everyone has. And of course, you know, they, they make for a great Instagram picture or something for tourists. But in reality, they nice. shouldn't be there. 
we've got all these really beautiful endemic species, you know, like the key deer, for example, yeah. this white-tailed deer that is like the size of a golden retriever, essentially. And yeah, it's an herbivorous, but it's an herbivorous species. And so they, they walk around eating these, these native plants. And so what happens with green iguanas is, is this herbivorous reptile, this large herbivorous reptile is a seed disperser in its native habitat. So it eats all of these non-native plants and uh, they, they love them because a lot of them are flowering, you know, or they're fruiting. And as a result, they eat the seeds, they poop them out someplace and more non-native plants pop up. And that results in this really unbalanced habitat. So, uh, you know, there is not, unlike some, you know, if, if, <laughs> if, if something like grizzly bears got loose and established in Florida, that would be a pretty extreme case. And I think everyone would probably support the humane removal of non-native grizzly bears to the Miami area. Um, but people don't see that with green iguanas and they, they just don't quite see the impacts, don't understand the impacts. Maybe they don't understand that it's a big deal that um, some of these non-native species are spreading things like Brazilian pepper plant or just it doesn't really seem to be a problem. And at the same time, you're in the middle of a city. The habitat's already degraded. And so it's it's really hard to drive home that these these animals can cause problems. You know, Florida, as disturbed as it is, as many invasive species as there are, um, we still have a lot of native species and wonderful, very unique habitats that need to be protected. Um, with that said, it's extremely hard to control sure, these populations. Exactly. And, um, there's, and I'm sure you've seen it in the news or, or maybe some of the listeners have on this podcast, but um, FWC made, uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife uh, Commission made a rather... Um, no, I, I feel you. I, I, was, I was thinking bold, but I don't know, or uh, novel, maybe? Yeah, made... Yeah, I, I would say the FWC made a rather simple statement would be the best way to put it. Um, you know, they it's not untrue that these animals need to be controlled and uh, they, they can legally be um, killed on, on properties, private properties um, to be euthanized uh, in one way or another. And they do not follow under uh, the animal cruelty laws of the state, but there was some, uh, I guess, outcry and, and uh, concern when FWC basically said, you know, you can, you can shoot these animals on your property there's a whole host of other problems that are associated with that sort of control method. I'm not against the removal and the euthanasia, uh, the humane euthanasia of these species, nor am I even against the, the shooting these animals if need be to control the populations. The problem is, is FWC came out and backtracked, I should say. uh, And they said, you know, this isn't the wild West. It really isn't. You can't just run around. It, even even if it's just a BB gun or a pellet gun, uh, the the big problem is is a lot of times these animals are just wounded. You know, they're not actually right. killed outright. It's not um, humane. In reality, if it's not, it's not at all. Um, it, it may be legal, but it's not humane. And so they backtracked on the statement, which was the the smart thing to do. Um, they you can still drive home the fact that these things are ecologically damaging. They do need to be removed, but the the key thing here is there are professionals, there are trained trappers, licensed trappers in the state of Florida that can remove them from your property if they're there and causing damage. Um, and I encourage people to use those resources. Um, you also can technically catch them and own them as pets. You know, they're still legal pets in the state of Florida and that may change in the future. And I wouldn't be surprised. I'll tell if, you if what, the case. I, my um, memories of Piccadilly, I would not want to work with a wild adult iguana. Forget about it. <laughs> I, 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 
I've done it. I've done it before and yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend it. It's no, not for the faint of no. heart, you know? Um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of times people, you know, they, they want to see them sure. removed. They understand the ecological yeah. importance and impact they have, but they right. also don't see no, them. No, it is double-edged so, sword for sure. Yeah, it, it really is. It's a tough situation because these animals are pets and they're beloved by so many people, by the masses, but they're also green iguanas are going to be an equatorial invasive species, meaning they are just, they're, they're global. Um, they are going to be present in pretty much every area that is tropical that can support them from a physiological perspective. So uh, I guarantee you populations will be popping up in Southeast Asia um, if they haven't already um, and just other places around the world because they're, they're sold, they're bought, they're traded, they escape or they're released in some cases. Uh, it might just be because they came sure. on a container ship. You know, in general invasive species, it's not always just a direct action right. that causes their right. establishment. But um, yeah, they're, yeah. they're going to be everywhere. So, uh, Well, and then Chris, what should somebody who owns a pet iguana who maybe didn't do the research or if they did do the research finds themselves in a life predicament where they can no longer house one? What should they do so they don't release it in the wild? Are there alternatives for that? So I will speak, you're in Florida. I'm a Florida resident and Florida happens to be one of the biggest markets for exotic animals. Um, FWC has a wonderful pet amnesty day program. I don't know if they pop up every month or if they're quarterly, but uh, FWC provides um, days and locations around the state where you can turn in exotic pets that need to be rehomed. Um, and it's, I believe it's a no questions asked program. At the same time, they also have people that are willing to adopt out these animals, you know, uh, that have been approved. And I don't remember if it's licensed or permitted, but, you know, th there's some sort of documentation that, that allows them to take them in um, after they're, they've been looked over. In other states, there are whole hosts of animal rescues. Um, there are some breeders as well, people, you know, that, that do produce these things that have huge hearts and, um, they are absolutely willing to donate their, their money and, and, and time and space to, and resources to, you know, to, to keep these things safe and to provide them a good home. Um, social media has, has provided a lot of these kind of networks. I would, I would encourage people to look for something that has got like a 501c3 status or, you know, it's been a licensed nonprofit in one way. There are plenty of people who are willing to take in free animals that don't necessarily have the means either to care for them properly. So do some homework, do some background, but it, it really shouldn't be that hard in most states to find someone that is willing to yes, take these and, things in. And just a caveat um, to that, uh, I can't speak, of course, for all accredited zoo and aquaria, but I think a misconception by the public is often like, oh, well, I'll just drop it off at the zoo if I don't want it. And a lot of zoos will not take unwanted exotic pets uh, for several reasons. Um, one of them being that they usually already have ambassador animals and they don't know this animal, their animal's background. And as you mentioned, it's a lifelong caring for this animal can be, you know, it can be years and lots of money. And zoos just, zoos often are struggling for resources to take care of their own, uh, their own animals that they exhibit. So that's usually, I, I don't know off the top of my head, I don't know of a, an accredited zoo or aquarium that, that does that. So I think these, Pet amnesty yeah. or other nonprofits, as you mentioned, is going to be your best bet. But those also get full as well, too, pretty quickly. Absolutely. So if and I encourage people, if you are going to, um, you know, drop off a pet to a nonprofit that's willing to take it in and provide, you know, the medical care or 
just long-term regular husbandry, you know, yeah. uh, care and upkeep. Yeah. The husbandry, uh, I would encourage you to also <laughs> donate yes, to them as very well good point. because, because it's going to cost a heck of a lot more sure. than you'd imagine to, uh, to really take care of them. So, you know, it, it realistically, this problem can be avoided by doing your homework on the front end, but I mean, it, things do happen, um, you know, medical bills or something like that, where the commitment you had was there for maybe a decade and all of a sudden it disappears rapidly um, along with some other aspect of your life. And there's no way to prepare for that, but there are people out there willing to help. Um, It's just a matter of, it it may take a little while to find a good home. Um, And I would encourage if, if you are just finding a private home for an animal that like an iguana, for example, you know, ask the individuals you're rehoming the animal to, to provide proof that they've done their homework. You know, um, try to encourage that that responsible yes, pet that's ownership. That's what I always that's what I always preach. Definitely responsible pet ownership. And Chris, for people that really are passionate about reptiles and especially iguanas, how can the average person who wants to be involved get involved with iguana or reptile conservation? So there are so many wonderful conservation groups out there, and and there are groups. Uh, else. I'll put these the shameless plug in, you know, yes, these groups of I'm plug yeah, you guys. but there's, yes. there are, there are, yeah. So, but there's, there's also so many other conservation groups that are uh, us based or sometimes they are within the natural range of that species um, that you can donate to. Um, donations are pretty critical. Now donations, are, money is tight. You know, I mean, the economy is the stock market might be doing great, but not everyone has that extra money. Yeah, so, especially those that own um, horses and iguanas. You can, <laughs> And our yeah. grad students. So, uh, you know, there's also... With kids. I feel absolutely. you, buddy. So, so, you know, you can... You, there there are other ways, you know, if you've got a skill, you know, things like web design or maybe even Photoshop, for example, you can contact some of these conservation groups and say, hey, you know, I've got this ability and I've got a little bit of time I can donate, you know, remotely. Um, you know, maybe I can help you come up with something for a fundraiser or you can just share on Facebook. You can now do fundraisers through Facebook. And that's been fantastic for us. You know, you can just share a post and put set it so that your Facebook post donates if anyone, you know, is willing to, and you can just spread the word. Uh, Honestly, spreading the word is critical. Just letting people know that these animals exist and they need help is, is important. Um, Another way that it doesn't necessarily relate to, to just iguanas, um, but citizen science in general is a growing field. Um, It's critical. It has certainly helped my research, uh, not necessarily with iguanas, but it, it has with, with some invasive gecko work that I'm doing now, just learning about, you know, what animals where, are located yeah. and, and where. Um, yeah. And so uh, in the case of like the invasive lizards, you can certainly help Florida. Um, if you happen to see a really weird looking lizard that looks out of place, you can take a picture and upload it to one of these places or, you know, contact your local university or perhaps FWC and let them know, Hey, I, I see this thing. Is it supposed to be here? And, and you can provide, you know, some location information. Um, there are going to be other ways that you can, you know, volunteer your time. Um, in some cases, there it's it's getting more rare just because of the expenses and stuff. But there, there are other opportunities occasionally that pop up where individuals are uh, can volunteer their physical time and presence. Um, you know, on on some of these trips to the field to assist. Um, but in in general, I think that slowed down some, but it, it may still be possible. So it's always worth contact conservation group and say, hey, you know, I, I'm willing to buy a plane ticket to kind of to help out, but just be ready to work if you do. Oh yes, definitely. I, uh, I did a, um, a trek with Earthwatch and, uh, yeah, over to Africa and definitely 
worked a lot and it was awesome. And now speaking and giving the IRCF a plug, how can our audience learn more about your organization? So we have a website and that's www.ircf.org. Um, you can learn about our past or current projects there. You can also follow us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page, you know, the International Reptile Conservation Foundation, and we've got a, a, a Twitter account as well. And so we, we try to keep most of them uh, up to date as much as possible. Um, but yeah, you're, you're welcome to go to those websites and, and, and learn there. Um, you can contact us just like you did, for example. Oh, I uh, did the know, cold, through, I did the cold call. Messenger, I was like, you Hey, yeah. you don't know me, yep. <laughs> but dot, dot, hey, dot, that, dot. that, yeah, that works. Um, but honestly, you know, we, we meet sure. a lot of contacts that way. So, um, and we encourage people that, you know, have something to contribute to, uh, to do that. I don't mean money. I just mean, just, you know, anything information, uh, you know, just they're willing to have willingness to help or just saying, you know, Hey, you know, we support, we support your organization and we like what you do. Absolutely. So we always appreciate it. Cool. And Chris, we'll definitely put the links up to your organization on our show notes as well. And everybody go like the international reptile conservation foundation on Facebook and Twitter. And do you have an Instagram account? Cause that's all the rage now. You, uh, I honestly, I, I don't know if we have an Instagram right now. I thought, I think we, we may have for a while and we may not, I don't remember. <laughs> I know it's a workout and I'm blessed it's enough tough. that my podcast partner, Chris does most of it because he's super savvy and he's hip to the scene, but I'm learning and, uh, yes, but no, it's, it's all the rage. So, uh, but I, I I'm still a Facebook girl. I love Facebook, which is how I reached out to you. Uh, and now lastly, do you have any advice for students or people that are interested in either a career or just like, I know we talked a little bit about volunteering with reptiles in general or guana conservation. What's your, you're a, you're a lifelong member uh, working with reptiles. Uh, what's some of your advice? Well, uh, from a, from an academic perspective, just being a graduate student, um, which is usually who I'm speaking to. Um, I'd, I'd say try to connect with as many people as possible. Um, my, my time with IRCF uh, was purely, it, it began through a friendship on Facebook with, with the, the founder and CEO of the organization. And, uh, you know, five, six years later, and I'm speaking on behalf of the organization, you know, on a podcast. So um, I, I'd say connect with people, communicate with people, see what you can do to help. There's uh, lots of ways you can communicate through social media, obviously email, just contacting conservation groups directly is important. Um, from a... Uh, like an academic perspective, you know, for people that, or, or you know, or, or zoos or any background where people are trying to work on, on these concert projects in a real professional capacity. Um, it is one of the most uplifting and also kind of most heartbreaking fields to work in, you know, cause you're always, you're trying to race against time. You're racing against the clock. Um, and it's always an uphill battle. Uh, so I would expect a good bit of hardship, maybe some heartbreak and some setbacks along the way. It's just, you've got to be willing to persevere and, and uh, keep going. There's nothing easy about conservation in general. Um, so being able to adapt and improvise uh, on your feet is, is really critical. Um, your failures will probably outnumber your successes in conservation. Um, people usually don't want to talk about that. Uh, you don't see that as being, you know, when you when you see a commercial from from a big conservation group or maybe discovery or something like that you know they're they might show the plight of an orangutan you know in a forest in borneo being being destroyed 
And then they also might show these successes. Uh, for example, you know, uh, these animals are being released back into ha- pristine habitat or something along those lines. But in reality, there's probably a hundred failures along the way for every one success. It might be a big success. It might be the success that that species needs to survive. But um, there's there's going to be some some stumbles. Um, I guess an analogy or a metaphor, if you will, that you know, I kind of think of like we we want it to be like a game of checkers. You know, it's kind of got just these simple moves. Um, it, it can take a strategy to get there, but it, it's it's a, a fairly simple way to do it. And in reality, it's more like chess. And again, this isn't a unique metaphor or analogy um, where the pieces to move them, they they not only take a toll just in, in time, but they also cost a lot of money to move a piece. And perhaps a piece like a pawn is not as successful at, you know, causing a king to go into checkmate. But uh it, it doesn't cost as much and so if you want to use a queen for example it's going to cost a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of effort now to make it even more complex conservation is more like a game of chess but with an audience of tens of thousands of people um some of them are heckling you some of them are cheering you on um you might have a referee there that knows the rules of the game that's telling you one thing and you've got another one to the other side that is telling you uh uh, the wrong thing to do. So it, there are just, it, it gets complex quick. So just be prepared for some mental gymnastics and be prepared to, um, you know, really, really commit uh, a ma- some major aspects of your life, whether it's your time or, or money or just, you know, um, your emotions to it. Um, I, I wouldn't have it any other way, um, but there, there is a cost, you know, that, that's associated with it. So just be prepared. Um, it, just even as a pet owner, just going back, if, if you're not just conservation, but just being a pet owner of some of these exotic species, um, be prepared for failures and hardship as well. So, um, be prepared for vet bills. That's <laughs> oh, yeah. that will pop up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, rainy but, day you know, fund. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it really, conservation is one of those fields that is somewhat you know bipolar if you will or you know it's it's got this um this effect that you get some of these amazing amazing wonderful experiences and positive outcomes but it it just it takes a lot along the way so just be prepared for that so i I encourage students to um you know to reach out to to people that have had failures and had successes and learn from them. Sure. Uh, uh, It's always a good thing to not reinvent the wheel if possible, right? Yeah. You don't, you don't need to do that. You really don't. Um, You need to think outside the box and accomplish things that are new and, and you need to break new ground, but you also need to make sure that, that you, you get the job done one way or another. And that's where, as you mentioned, having this team of partnerships or experts or people that have, are, are, have a little bit more experience than you are great to have as mentors. I know that helped me a lot uh, throughout my academic career, just even my zookeeping career in general is always listening to my, listening to my elders. <laughs> they would be annoyed if I called them elders. I mean that in the most loving yeah. way, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that goes for really any field and any aspect of, of working with animals, whether it's in captivity or in the wild, you know, there are so many people that have had some really great experiences over the years. Yeah. And, it's, well, it's, and they have amazing stories too. I always, I always absolutely. love hearing uh, the, the stories of back in the day when we could just hand grab blah, 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 you know, it's some funny stuff. So awesome. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for uh, having coffee with me this morning and talking all about iguanas. I know I am definitely excited about your work at the IRCF. 
And hopefully everybody will check out your website at www.ircf, the initials, um, .org, and or uh, like you on Facebook. And I really, if you have any other questions, hit Chris up, send him a, send him a Facebook message. He's always uh, great at responding. And I, I feel very excited that we've now formed this uh, social network friendship, if you will. And I look forward to talking with you more potentially in the future and and. Chris has also recommended some other potential experts that we could have on uh, on our podcast. So I, that's what it's all about, this community, right, Chris? And uh, I definitely appreciate your time. So thank you so much for being on All Creatures Podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it. And I mean, iguanas are my passion. I could talk about iguanas for hours. So uh, I I really appreciate the time to uh, to kind of get get some uh, opinions and hopefully educate the public a little bit more on on iguanas in general and why I like them and why they're worth conserving. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, we'll definitely have another conversation again soon.